Hello, and welcome to Getting It. The conversation where we try to understand life just that little bit more. My name's Dan. And my name is Saban. And we're both medical students based in London. And in this episode, we have our first guest, Thomas, who gives us a brief overview of the political landscape in Europe in the run-up to World War One. Good afternoon, or good morning, uh, or anything in between. Uh, how are you doing, Saban? Not too bad, I guess. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm not doing too badly. Wait, I think there's someone else here right now. Yeah, so we have to ask it for a third time. How are you doing, Thomas? <laughs> um, I'm good, thank you for asking. Um, so essentially, today we have our very first guest on the podcast. Um, it's a very special guest. His name is Thomas. And uh, today he's going to be talking with us a little bit about history. He's going to be talking about it to two people who know sadly not very much. So hopefully he can shed some light. Uh, some would say he's the son of... Oh, don't worry. Um, okay, could you give us a brief introduction to who you are? Um, me? Uh, well, I am... I don't know what to say, to be honest. Uh, there are so many things how to start. Uh, and, well, I'm just uh, just somebody, you know. Okay, so you're somebody. Um, well, let's start with, where are you, where do you live? Um, my address right now. It would be quite quite exposing, wouldn't it be? Um, what city? A city, oh, sorry. Yeah, I live in London right now. Okay, so you live in London. Are you studying? Uh, I hope so. Yeah. Last time I checked, I was enrolled in one course. Uh, so, yeah. What course? Uh, I'm doing medicine, actually. Yeah. What university? Um, it was King's College London. Uh, I hope they don't change the name because there were some discussions about that. Okay. So you're doing medicine at King's College London, um, the, the, the university named King's College London. And outside of your studies, do you have any particular interests? Oh my God, so many. I can't, we'll be sitting here and just listing them, all of them, to be honest. So um, I love everything and I love knowing things and, and uh, that's my aim for life, you know. I think that's a pretty good mentality, to be fair. Um, and I know you fairly well now and I can definitely verify that that's true. Are there, if you had to outline three topics, maybe in particular, that you enjoy learning about outside of the scope of medicine, what would you say? Um where out of medicine, I think I, I love food. I love eating. I love how food is made. I love watching plants grow as well. No, uh, but uh, in that direction. So that is one thing. Uh, the other thing is, um, quite frankly, I think I, I really like history because uh, it is a big thing of our lives of uh, and everything that's ever happened, you know, and uh, you never know. Maybe you're a part of history as well at some point. Uh, and lastly, I think I, I do like languages a lot because um, uh, I think this is such an amazing way to to see people in a different light, how, how people speak, how they talk, why they say certain things, uh, words as well, like what words are more common in languages uh, than others, you know. So brilliant, fascinating things. And um, on that vein, could you just give us an outline of the languages that you enjoy to learn or that you can speak? Uh, right, so I personally speak uh, German, English, Polish, uh, Mandarin, French, Russian, uh, did a bit of Latin, uh, did a bit of Spanish. Uh, well, Latin is quite a dead language, so it doesn't really count, but still. Uh, I travelled a bit, so I try to pick up a few words every now and then, but yeah, that's about so, it. Wait, so, so so was that about 10? Uh, no, it's, 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 I think it's seven or eight. It's not 10 yet. Seven or eight. And would you say you're fairly fluent in them? Uh, well, most of them I'm, I am able to hold a conversation. Uh, actually, uh, English is just 
like quite on the top of the list now because uh, the first time in my life actually, so we commented that my English wasn't very good. It was last year in the bank and I was like ecstatic because it was the first time that somebody commented saying like, it was really well, good, you know, and, and it's never happened to me before. So I think like English now is, is, is fairly well, you know, I'm, I'm trying, aspiring to be. So studying in London, I guess, before that you'd never lived in an English speaking country, I no. think. And no, sorry, I never did. And it's quite a big change, you know, uh, but yeah, I think I managed quite all right. And before we get into the history element, there's just one point I wanted to make, which is I think as English speakers living in England, or in English-speaking countries, I don't think we give enough credit to people who come from a foreign country uh, and don't have English as a native language and manage to learn English to a native level or a, a nearly fluent level. I think that's um, really impressive. So, yeah, the fact you came over uh, at the end of your teenage years and you're doing a medical degree in English, I think anyone who does that, that's a real achievement. And I don't know, Saban, if you had any point you wanted to say. If you ever, by the way, just quickly, because we're doing this via FaceTime, so Thomas and I are in London, Saban's not. Um, yeah, I, I need to put my hand up. Yeah, you got to do it like <laughs> I in school. <laughs> so Saban, do you want to interrupt quickly? Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask, how did you go about learning so many languages to the point where, you eat, okay, even if you're not 100% fluent, but even just to the point of being able to hold a you know, semi-decent conversation, how did you do that? It's did a you very like unique those- background. Um, so uh, I was quite fortunate with my parents being from like two different countries and and uh, they were quite forceful, well, quite forceful with teaching the language as well. So I had trips to the motherland, uh, which is Poland, basically, um, every summer and, and also to went to Chinese school to, to brush up on my Chinese, uh, sorry, Mandarin, of course, and uh, all the other languages as well, German, because I lived in Austria, English is... Pretty much a given if you live in Europe, I guess. And and the other languages, is, it's uh, something we had to do in school. So I went to a language school. Uh, so we studied them on the level where we should be able to live. And um, wait, I have one more question about languages before we get started on the history. Um, in the future, is there a language of which you speak basically zero that you would love to be fluent in one day? Uh, well, uh, my big dream is to, uh, to level it up to 10 uh, eventually in my life. Uh, so, um, from the big languages, I think I would like to learn, um, Arabic and, and Hindi. Yes. Uh, so, but this is, uh, in the distant future, I'm still young. So I'll, I'm trying to, at some point at least learn them. All right. So in, in terms of the hi- history stuff, I, I have an interesting relationship with history because in school, I absolutely hated it. I, I think it was because just school made me hate it. I think the way it's taught in school just doesn't do justice to the subject of history. In the UK at least. Yeah. From then, I've just always hated history. I, I managed to do a GCSE in it somehow, but barely passed that. And yeah, however, in the last two years, I've really, well, last two years, probably last four years, I've really started going into history a lot. I started on the academic side, um, just learning. I was learning some stuff about nutrition. I was starting to learn the history behind how everything kind of happened, just the history behind the science. And th- at that point, I was like, wow, history is cool, man. And more recently, I've been doing stuff in terms of Islamic history and just, you know, just general ge- geopolitical history in certain areas and stuff. And it's massively interesting. I think the way it's taught in schools just takes away from the bigger picture. They kind of just give you a bunch of facts and timelines to memorize that don't really have much context, or at least you don't really have much use of them at that point. Yeah. And I think that's... That's what hopefully Thomas will be able to help us with a bit. Is we went to the same school, Saban and I, yeah, right. and our experience with history, as he, as Saban just said, was not good. So hopefully, um, 
uh, as I understand it, in in other countries in the EU, for example, you learn it in a very different way. I think. Um, I, th- I think yeah, it is quite uh, difficult to generalize, saying like, oh, in other countries it's taught this way or another. Uh, for me, I think it was mostly the teachers. You know, a teachers have such a big impact on how a subject is taught and how you engage with the subject itself. You know. Uh, and if somebody just reads off the script, uh, gives you random numbers that you have to memorize and, and doesn't show you how you, well, you see like certain patterns, like, and then actually history comes quite uh, to life, you know, and, and it's something that you can actually touch and feel. And if you walk down the streets, you can actually see it as well. And also, if you talk to people from other countries, and if you know something about the history, they are so more appreciative because uh, they feel like you, you actually uh, put an effort to understand their culture in, in a way or another, you know? Yeah, I, I wish, I really wish I had that kind of enlightenment when I was younger, because I would have been, I would have been diving into history from then. I've only just kind of had that kind of realisation fairly recently but obviously I just don't have as much time to try and get straight into the history uh, of everything I, I never really wanted to put it onto the teachers because yeah I, I know the like teachers have a very big impact on how a student uh, like thinks about a certain subject um, but I, I thought just the subject as a whole was dead I didn't really put it on the teachers but yeah anyway so what what's your favorite time of history to to look at overall um, it really depends in what mood I am, uh, to be honest. I, I like to talk about uh, pretty much anything in history, but uh, I think from the more recent times, uh, one of the interesting bits I think everybody who lives in Europe should at least know about is, is uh, the First World War and uh, how this impacts literally everything that we know nowadays as well, to a certain degree, of course, but uh, yeah. And why in particular would you use the First World War as a landmark for reference? into modern history? Uh, so this is where everything started. This was, uh, I think, one of the major changes in, in politics in the world as well. All monarchies began to fail, and, and well, except the British one, of course, but all other ones uh, crumbled and, and it, it was a set new world order. And a, a lot of things that happened during and, and shortly after the First World War were factors that, that actually triggered in one way or another the second world war uh so it was a, a kind of a continuum so and um today if you don't mind do you mind would you mind just um giving an outline of uh, maybe the lead up to the first world war and a quick overview of maybe the events that happened to someone who knows very little about it almost nothing more than just a couple of the countries involved really because i think there are a lot of people out there who haven't had the chance to dive into history in the way that you have. And I think um, it would be really appreciated. So maybe if you wanted to just start um, giving an outline of just before the First World War, some of the things that started causing the tensions. Uh, All right. Okay. Uh, So, uh, well, first things first, uh, just to put it into perspective, uh, the First World War was like 1914 to 1918. And it was about 100 years, well, more than 100 years ago now. Uh, and people, if people know a bit about history, they kind of know that there was like uh, somebody assassinated, uh, some kind of prince was killed, you know, and, and then everything just started going to hell. I can relate to that. Uh, yeah. So, so, so uh, actually it was uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand uh, who was uh, killed uh, 
during a parade in um, in the former Yugoslavic uh, republics. Uh, and he, well, he was killed and that triggered everything afterwards. Uh, but that would be too easy to say, oh my God, somebody was killed. And then uh, just because somebody died, uh, we start a whole world war and, and everybody's killing each other for no good reason. For this one prince, he must be very, very impressive uh, to, to have, actually have such an impact on the world. Uh, but that would be too simple. And I, I think that that would give him too much credit. Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, he did his, his uh, fair share of things, but uh, I would, that would be unfair uh, saying that. So um, something that that brings me to want to know is, could you then give an outline of the major players, the major countries in Europe, the major powers at that point when Ferdinand was assassinated? Uh, so, yeah, so the major powers, uh, as we all know, well, hopefully at, at the end of this podcast, of course, uh, were Germany, uh, Austria-Hungary uh, at uh, one side that allied um, at the beginning of the First War with Italy and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Bulgaria is overlooked, but Bulgaria took part in it as well. And then we've got the, on the other side, um, the major colonial powers, um, Great Britain, uh, sorry, France and, and um, Russia at the time. Uh, so these were the kind of oppositions and all the allies and colonies they had. Uh, so you, you could, um, if you know about a bit about British history, you could tell that it, they were outnumbered, uh, the Germans and Austrians and the Ottoman Empire, uh, just by numbers, you know. And what were the major, maybe this is too much for generalization, but what were the major tensions beforehand? What were the causes of the tensions between the different powers? All right. So, so this is a big question and uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. And uh, there are a lot of things. So uh, I would outline a few different things. So I'll just do it topic by topic. So the first one was um, Germany's creation. Germany as a country was not, uh, uh, so Germany as a country actually just came into place about 1871. So, well, exactly 1871 uh, after the French-German war. And it was the first time in a very, very long time that the Germans actually were a united country because uh, they were uh, more like in the modern perspective of European Union. So a lot of uh, duchies and, and dukes and, and, and whatever they were at small pieces of land and they were like pretty much all together. So all I know about, about that period is that there was at one point the Holy Roman Empire and then another point there was Prussia. Is that what kind of happened at, around that time? Uh, so a lot of happened uh, uh, around that time. So the Holy Roman Empire uh, collapsed uh, hundred of years before uh, before the First World War. And uh, there was a, a long dispute that actually is relevant to the First World War as well, which is uh, the kind of conflict between Austro-Hungary, which, uh, which most of the time were the Habsburgers, which is the royal family there, uh, were the leaders of the Holy Roman Empire for the majority of time uh, since its existence. And then there was Prussia on the other side, which was the biggest kind of German-speaking country at the time. Uh, and then eventually were also the leaders of the German uh, Reich, the first one. Uh, and um, they were like disputing about a lot of things and they got into a lot of conflict uh, between, there was uh, this uh, initiative called the German, uh, the Deutsche Bund, which is uh, the kind of similar again to the European Union, um, a federation of different city-states and, and countries, as you like to call them, uh, that, that uh, well, Austria was excluded at first, started a war uh, for 
different, various other reasons, and they got into fights. This was about early 19th century. So they weren't really getting on that well, the Germans and the Austrians, but they knew they had to rely on in the future. This is, uh, but this is going a bit too far, I think. Um, but coming back to, to the creation of, of uh, the German Empire at the time was uh, the f war between the French and the Germans, which uh, ended in a total humiliation of the French, uh, as you might say, because they actually stormed into Paris. They captured uh, the, the emperor at the time. And, uh, well, later he was, uh, he had to abduct and, and the, the Republic was, uh, was formed again. And ever since they're only presidents in France, so mm -hmm. thanks to the Germans, of course, uh, only presidents in France nowadays. Uh, but yeah, so it ended in total humiliation, which led also later on, they never reconciled and late, later on to, um, actually France coming closer to England, which as in history was, was quite a rare thing. But they were so humiliated by the Germans, they thought, we can't deal with that. Especially uh, if you think there was about 40 years before the start of the First World War. This was one of the major things that also happened. That That's why Germany was pressured into actually making up with, with, with Austria, Hungary. Because they, they couldn't really go to France begging like, oh, sorry, we totally destroyed you. We actually took everything we wanted from you. And then be like, okay, but let's be friends. You know, they can't do that. Because uh, if you think of that, uh, countries, uh, well, nowadays also, but previously also, they were more about individual people and they had feelings, emotions, you know, and and and, and also you can see this as, as the the, the the soul of the nation, you know. If you feel humiliated by someone, you don't want to be friends with them afterwards. Most of the time. So the 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 so the French around the end of the nineteenth century were turning more to become allied with the British, and the Germans were turning more towards looking eastwards. Is that right? Uh, well, south uh, at this uh, at this point, because because uh, uh, well, it was a very weird thing. Uh, because all of the emperors at the time were related, they were cousins before the uh, the, the dawn of, of the First World War. So it was quite a weird constellation. Uh, so they couldn't really look east for a simple reason that they have territorial disputes with, with Russia, uh, especially Austria had territorial disputes with Russia for various reasons. One of them is uh, one of the ideologies that came up in the early 19th century was nationalism. Nowadays we think of nationalism of like skinheads and 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 racists and and whatever you like to think of them. Well, history taught us differently, uh, but at the time you have to think these roots were a very very progressive thought in the nineteenth century. Of course, uh, there were a lot of other things that were considered terribly terribly racist at that time. But nationalism itself, in its roots, is actually quite a progressive thing because you could relate to people that are from another place, but they speak the same language. And you would say, oh, we are the same people. We connect to each other because we speak the same language. We've got a shared culture. And this never happened because for example, especially in Germany, especially, well, especially in Germany, this never really happened. It never occurred that a German speaking country could exist because there were so many different dukes uh, that, that wanted to have power and, and so many minor kings as well. So, so especially from a German's perspective, it was very progressive because you had, they had territorial disputes for centuries uh, and, and now the first time in history, they wanted to be united by the idea of, of nationalism. And uh, of course, uh, this led also to a lot of conflicts in, in later terms, which brings me back to Russia because Russia's idea it was the only major Slavic power at the time. 
Uh, so they were aspiring to be the protective power of the Slavic nations. Uh, unfortunately, or uh, in, in this constellation, was that Germany and Austria had a lot of uh, Slavic, well, nationals uh, in their territory, uh, which was, uh, uh, well, partly due to Germany's expansion policy and due to Austria's uh, marriage policy as well. Uh, because, uh, for example, for a long time, Austria had no access to the sea, so they couldn't take part in uh, colonialism. They couldn't send off fleets and troops uh, for, for centuries because they had no access to it. So what they did, or tried to compensate for it, was by claiming land in Europe that was more or less not claimed by anyone or any major power at the time. So it was a huge, huge state. And, and then again, uh, I like to compare it to the European Union because in, in, in Austria-Hungary, before the First World War, there were... Austrians, there were Slovaks, there were Slovenians, there were Hungarians, there were Romanians, there were Bulgarians, there were Polish, there were Ukrainians, there were uh, to a certain degree Belarusians, uh, Bosnians, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So a lot of different people from a lot of different countries all spoke a different language. Uh, and, and this was uh, kind of like a, a European Union mini version uh, at the time. But this led to conflicts at the end of the First World War. Uh, which which I will maybe talk about later. But uh, these were like the major reasons why. And then there was always uh, Great Britain, uh, the, the greatest uh, Britain of all time, right? Um, uh, so we've got a Great Britain which uh, had this, uh, at least from a German fo foreign policy perspective, was considered as a balancing power. So, yeah. Just very quickly, um, before we move on to Great Britain, just so that we're understanding so far and the audience is understanding so far. So, so far you've mentioned it from the German perspective and the cause, the, the fact that Germany came into existence, increasing tensions with um, the surrounding countries um, and leading to more territorial disputes with, um, for example, Russia, which was, um, ex was Russia expansionist? Uh, at the time, not really. They had a lot of problems, which led eventually to, uh, well, to it crumbling at some point. And the Slavic people, and then there's the the, the French who had been who who were weaker at this time, and then is that is that fair to say? Or I wouldn't say necessarily weaker. Uh, they were a bit overwhelmed by the Germans. Uh, they caught them off guard, you might say, because uh, at that time when when the German French War happened, they had uh, about fifty years of prosperity. Uh, France was going well, amazingly economically speaking. But and what year are we talking roughly? So, so the German-French was 1870. So, so the 50 years before, uh, a great economic expansion. Uh, everything went quite smoothly, uh, one would say. Uh, so we've got the Viennese Congress, 1815, where, where France got a bit uh, uh, alienated by the people. But, uh, but afterwards, a great expansion policy. Uh, everything worked out pretty much fine for them. And then the Germans came and they had to pay reparation fees. They had to um, give them territory. And they were, well, frankly, humiliated by them. Okay, so sorry for interrupting you just as you were starting on Great Britain, but that was just to make sure that um, we're up to speed. And, and Saban, is there anything quickly to add on, on that part or should we get straight on to Great Britain? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like struggling to take all of this information in right now, so just carry on. You're just assimilating. Yeah, that, yeah I'm processing. Okay, so we'll move on to Great Britain. So this is the end of the 19th century, maybe you know a few decades before World War I. What position was Britain in at this time? 
So, so Britain, uh, in European history, or at least the last two, three hundred years, it, it tried to take the position of a balancing power. So they know, Britain always knew, if there is something on, going on on the continent that might get too powerful, it will most likely try to grab Britain as well. In its, in its uh, well, as it was an island, it could just watch and, and see the, the, the big brothers fighting over, over certain things and then just get slowly stronger and stronger until there is no hold. Uh, and they, the British foreign policies were mainly, uh, mainly to accommodate a kind of balance of power, because that's what uh, would prevent them getting involved into wars. Them, uh, also, well, there's, war is always a financial risk as well. Uh, so, so uh, and a lot of things, so they try to balance out the powers. So that's why also they, they took out the French invitation to, to join the Entente, uh, as as it is called in in, in history, uh, to actually uh, join them and and balance out Germany, which was rising very rapidly, and Austria-Hungary at the time as well, because they were all, allied with Germany, uh, and then uh, Russia came along. To be honest, I'm not quite sure why, but but they were there. Destroying uh, them. So at this time, is this fair to say that throughout recent history, in the last few centuries? When one country in Europe was, but when there was a power in Europe that was growing, it might affect other countries' relationships, um, different countries' relationships in order to balance out the growth of one particular country. So was France and Britain's um, closer relationship in the Entente a direct product of Germany's rise to power? Yes, yes, definitely. Because as I said, uh, if one country got a bit too strong, a bit a bit, just a tiny bit too strong for for Britain to be like, oh, they might might do something very very stupid uh, or very unfortunate for Britain. Uh, they would be like, oh, we need to mess with that, you know. So Britain was almost like a buffer in some ways. Uh, yes, you might say that uh, in in some ways, definitely. And at that time, what were the British interests? What was their main interest at the time? Was Britain a growing power? Um, I think a lot of many of us know that Britain was at that point arguably a superpower. I don't know if that's fair to say, at least in the 19th century. Um, was What were the interests of Great Britain at the end of the 19th century? Um, so there was this initiative by by Britain, uh, which is called, I, I don't know the, the specific words for, for in English, it, it was called Cap Cairo. So it, they wanted to have everything from south to north to have an axis for for like a British axis, basically. South to north of, of a particular continent or? Of Africa, of Africa. So so Cairo is on top and then uh, the cap is, is at the bottom. So, uh, and this was their m main policy and Germany was a bit, a bit uh, getting a bit stronger. They, they tried to have colonies in, in Africa, successfully managed of uh, what is nowadays known as Namibia, for example. Uh, so it's a bit, a bit like, oh, might as well take the colonies, which, which uh, you know, this was one of the main reasons why they were against Germany, but also because it, other than that, there was mainly about balancing powers because everything was going quite smoothly. And if, if something came along in Europe at the back door, you know, uh, Internationally speaking, everything was working quite well. They had this this magnificent British Empire at the time, uh, but but they wanted to maintain that basically. And before Germany, after the uh, uh, was is it called the Franco-Prussian War? What's the war called in eighteen seventy? Uh, I'm not quite sure about the English. 
So at, before that war, would it be fair then to say that Germany was somewhat of a sleeping giant in that it was inevitable that it would become a power and affect the balance in Europe, but it just hadn't organised itself yet? Or was that completely wrong? Well, Germany was not a country before that. So it was the the the. It was just a few uh, few small cities and countries that were loosely connected uh, by well it, the superiority of Prussia, and and then uh, the good Chancellor Bismarck was was smart enough to have this magnificent victory over the French as a united power to convince all the others to give up at least part of the sovereignty to join up uh, in a bigger country. Okay, so you've covered um, Great Britain, you've covered France, you've covered um, Germany, Russia, a little bit of Austria, Austria-Hungary as well. Um, and I, if I'm not mistaken, was the last major player in World War One or last directly involved player, was that um, the Ottoman Empire or...? Well, there was Italy as well, but Italy is a bit of a strange point. Uh, maybe come back to that. But yeah, the Ottoman Empire, uh, it was mainly an alliance against the British, to be honest. Uh, other than that, it was at this, at the peak was long gone and, and everybody knew it is eventually going to crumble in the next few centuries, well, decades or, or years even. And if you, at the turn of the 20th century, if you spoke to political commentators at that point and you asked them to place bets, do you think anyone saw World War One coming? Was it very blindingly obvious? Did it come out of nowhere? You, you've described that there were tensions that were increasing for various reasons, but was it something that people saw on the horizon or was it very sudden? Uh, you have to imagine the perspective of somebody who was living at that time. Nowadays, we see war as an absolutely horrendous thing where uh, humans uh, show the brutalest of faces, where humanity is not seen anymore, as, as we can see nowadays in war. War is not beautiful. It is very, very aggressive. It, it shows the worst in human beings. But at the time, you have to imagine that that before we had these technological advancements that we have now, like in the First war, World War, for example, the tank was introduced, which was not seen before, uh, or uh, for example, the uh, the trenches as well. The trench war was was quite significant in the First World War, but we never seen that before. You must imagine about 30, 40 years ago, for example, the last major war between countries was the German-French war, and you had these. Uh, ideas of, of war heroes that you can just march on and have like a one-on-one -on -one battle and then kill them. But but this was not the case anymore. People died, a lot of people died, and a, a lot more than in any other war before. So people didn't realize that, that war was such a terrible thing to happen. So for a lot of politicians at the time, war was, was just an extension of foreign policies. So it wasn't something that if... It wasn't something that was worried over particularly. Was it a mindset of if if there is a conflict, we will have a war? As opposed to these days, it's almost you countries will do everything they can in international policy to avoid direct conflict. Or is uh, this only like avoid conflict was overly seen just before the Second World War? But uh, you can tell that the people, it, it was about the confidence of the country. Like if, if uh, let's say they were confident enough in their military strategy and, and technology, they would go for war definitely if they thought they would win, you know, and, and this is what, uh, what happened just before the First World War. And looking at the countries that um, were major players in the tensions uh, towards the First World War, um, were any of these countries in particular averse or hope, 
trying to prevent war from happening or any of the countries uh, that trying to push for a war? What, what were the interests of uh, the major players? So uh, just, okay, let's have just a brief overlook. Uh, so I think, so we start off with Austria because it is where everything happened. Austria-Hungary, sorry, at the time. Uh, they wanted to expand south. They wanted to have uh, the whole of what was formerly known as Yugoslavia. They wanted to expand south and, and gain all the territory that they wanted because they were quite quite uh, quite successful with their expansion so far. So they were like, oh yeah, mine as well. Uh, but they not necessarily anticipated that that Russia would would come to the rescue for Serbia at that time uh, to actually uh, give it a go and and actually attack them. So this was a bit of an unfortunate situation for Austria, but because they wanted to have first a guarantee from Germany that they, they will actually well end up the bargain and actually join them in war against Serbia at the time. But Serbia is a tiny, tiny country, uh, as you might imagine. So they weren't really particularly concerned about a long, tedious battle. And Italy was on the side as well. So it was, was quite fortunate for them. But what they did not anticipate at the time, I believe, maybe I'm wrong from my perspective, was that, that Russia would actually come to the rescue of a, such a small country where they had little to no interest uh, whatsoever. Uh, many people also say they, they might have encouraged that in, in one way or another. Uh, but uh, I, th I think at the time, these uh, foreign policies and the military alliances were not as clear-cut, so nobody really knew unless they were really really, really deep into the circle of, of, uh, of uh, well, the monarchy. And at this point, this is pre-revolution for Russia, isn't it? That's right. So uh, were the interests or the identity of the Russian people different at this point um, relative in the context of the rest of Europe? This is, very, this is a very, very long question uh, to, to answer. Uh, you have to understand the Russians from a certain perspective. Uh, the the, the, the Tsars at the time were not very particular popular, as you might imagine, as, as the revolution and everything uh, came along. Uh, so it's quite difficult to say, uh, to, 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 like, to say it honestly. Maybe we can have an episode looking at that one day uh, in the future. Um, but Saban, is there any uh, question, looking at the broad overview of the players so far, that comes to mind for you? No, at one point I, I even got a bit lost, but I was just trying to come back. Man, I I, I don't know how, like you, your brain just must be a hard drive at this point. To, I, I, I can usually get a rough overview of timelines and stuff, but just remembering like all of those dates and when everything happened in such perfect order and synchronicity, I, I just can never do that. I'm, I'm just shook at this point. I was just in awe. I was like, wow, I wish I had this kind of knowledge. I don't know. Like, did I just miss all of this in history lessons, Dan? I don't know. I think for some reason we were being told about the Tudors. Yeah, exactly. And however many wives he had, was it six or seven? I, I don't even know. Uh, all, all I remember from World War One is that it's 1914 and Franz Ferdinand got assassinated we just send sent the whole world in chaos which is what you mentioned is like that's what people just say when they don't know what's going on but that, that's pretty much where i'm coming from so this already has been just a massive insight even though we haven't actually got to the actual war yeah, yet. yeah we haven't got to the war yet and, and it's <laughs> yeah exactly so, uh but I, I think we're trying to cover hundreds and uh and and well just decades of, of time you know and, and i think it's quite difficult to compliment like oh uh, to to put them in uh, into like a, such a small time, you know. I I do agree. I mean, we can end the episode fairly soon. It's been quite a lot of information. Um, there's just 
one more thing from my end that I would like to know before uh, we start to wrap things up, which would be if you could give a very brief overview of the year or two preceding the First World War. So you mentioned the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in Bosnia. Um, or, well, at the time it was Yugoslavia, right? Uh, I'm not quite sure. I think it was the Kingdom of Serbia at that time, but but I, I have to, to look that up to be honest. So in modern day Bosnia and Herzegovina? Yes. Okay. So, um, at that exact point, why did that basically cause the domino effect? Or maybe that's too long a question. Is there any way you could summarize it in just a couple of minutes? I, I can summarize this one sentence. It was the alliance system that that caused the, the domino effect. So, uh, Austria wants to attack. They didn't know about the alliance with Russia. Russia attacked, and uh, because Russia attacked, Austria called for help. So Germany came in and Italy at the time. and But they didn't knew at the time that, that Russia was allied with France and, and Great Britain. So they, they had to they had to come to the rescue because they, they signed an agreement. Uh, so uh, it was just, uh, well, one blow and then everything triggered everything pretty much. So it was a sitting, it was a time bomb, basically. It was, they were, for, so for the years before that, because of the alliance system, if one country started a conflict with another country in Europe, all of the alliances would come into play and there would almost straight away be a big domino effect if it was enough significant enough of an event. So that's arguably quite a bad system. In, in, or, or I don't know, it depends how war is interpreted, but surely that was quite a bad way to be in I mean, retrospect. I mean, everybody wants to be safe. You know, you don't want to be out there in Europe and just be there by yourself. You know, uh, if you're just by yourself, you, you'll be run over within, within like a year or so. Uh, so that's that's why uh, everything came to play. Uh, so yeah, it was quite a bad system. And if if it's a very long episode, uh, I must say. And, and if you take anything from that, is that that the World War was maybe triggered by one thing, but there were so so many reasons why it actually happened. Okay. Well, um, I mean, we haven't even got onto the war, but I feel like if we do, it might be. Uh, for me anyway, too much to process. For now, um, I think it's a lot to digest. Uh, it's really, really interesting to think about. And it's something that we, I definitely will go away and read more about to learn more about. Um, and I, I'm sure, Saban, you may uh, be interested in it too. Yeah, I mean, before now, I basically knew zero about World War. I, I mean, we haven't actually got to the actual war, but even just the follow-up. Yeah, I don't know. It. I don't think it was just expanded on like that in school in terms of all the different relations that, that were going on and just the situation of each individual country and what that had to, what impact that had in terms of just the triggering of the entire war afterwards. But yeah, I mean, this has been pretty insightful, man. I, I, I wish I kind of knew all of this or just had some kind of context to all of this when I was younger. I, I think a problem for us is we were taught history from a very Anglo-centric perspective as well. And I understand that that's, that's understandable to an extent. Any country will always Oh, I don't know. I, the thing is, I, I don't know how history is taught in other countries, but for us, it was very Anglo-centric. And so it's hard to have perspective. And so for Saban or for me, if we want to start learning about history, we basically have to start again and we have to try and do it as objectively as possible. We're lucky that these days there's so much information available on the internet. You don't have to buy it, like get a teacher, but um, at the same time, yeah, it is. It, it does make us reflect on the way history is taught and how things could be done better. Um but yeah, uh, the last thing I would add is that I really like looking at um, uh, maps, p 
political maps just before the First World War. I find it so interesting looking at Europe being uh, mapped out in a completely different way with the different countries. And then there are so many less countries, you know, uh, because of all of the small empires and, and um, I don't know. It, it's, it's really cool. But uh, that, I just wanted to add that. Uh, anyway, Thomas, is there anything else you would like to add before we wrap it up completely? I mean, there's so many things. I just got started, so I don't know uh, where, where to finish with that. But yeah, no, it, 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 that's pretty much everything for pre-World War. Okay, so what I'm thinking is there is so much to talk about, Thomas, and there is so much uh, random memory stored in your mind that we might need to, in the future, start a small series where we just sit down with you and you can try and dissect a few things for us. Um, I think from my end, that would be really cool, just to learn a bit more about certain times in history. And we're just looking at European history at the moment. I know just learning a little bit about Chinese culture, that it's, it's insane how... You ha you go to a different part of the world and they have their own completely um, completely separate history that doesn't tie in almost at all until modern times to European history and it's just as complex, just as deep and fascinating and yeah. So th there's a there's a lot to learn for us. I mean, uh, I don't know whether you do that here, but if people are interested in in the book recommendation that that shows the world from a different perspective, is because most of the time history is taught from a very Eurocentric perspective. So everything is starts in Europe, and everything that happens in Europe is important. If something happens somewhere else, it's not really relevant uh, to a certain degree, of course. Uh, so the, there's this book called uh, The Silk Road. Uh, it's a very nice book because it. Uh, it is. It actually focuses on the history, uh, but not from a European perspective, from the perspective of the Silk Road countries. So this is, uh, uh, well, olden days Persia, we've got uh, India and, and China in the end, of course. Uh, but uh, but the, the major countries within this Silk Road that, that were present, and also about the history of the Silk Road itself. So it's quite, quite interesting to see a different perspective. So what happened at the time that we don't know uh, and what happened in Europe, for example, because I think European history, at least people are familiar with, with certain terms, but uh, but uh, all the other ones are overlooked most of the time. Okay, so that can be the book recommendation for this episode from Thomas. The It's called uh, The Silk Road, and who's it by, please? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. Okay, well, we can add it in the show notes down below. Yeah, perfect. And, um, yeah, is there anything else, Saban, that you'd like to add? No, um, th this is just all reminding me of um, when you were talking about the history of China just being a completely different world. You, you've seen that video by Bill Wirtz, right? The history of the world. Man, it's so funny. <laughs> it was just reminding me of that. But it's so true how, because it, it was literally, he was just going around, the, uh, going on about the history of just one side of the world, basically China, Japan, that kind of area. And then it was just all the history of the the like Euro European countries and then everything happening in the middle and like the Middle East and everything just it was all just separated and then it's like as time went on it just kind of all merged but yeah there's just so much history that's been separated out and yeah again so many different perspectives like we've just seen here that I think at least in the English teaching system we don't really get that much perspective or and I guess it's just Western civilization in total uh, but yeah incredibly insightful thank you. But Thank you very yeah, much, Thomas. You're, you're, you're going to have to finish off the rest of the war at some point for us. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I look forward to that, Thomas. But for now, I think uh, we should probably end things here and then we look forward to the next one with you, Thomas. We'll call it uh, History with Thomas. So yeah, uh, from my end, that's probably everything. All right, peace. 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 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Getting It. If you enjoyed this episode, or didn't, then feel free to leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcasts app, or on the Apple Podcasts website. We'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or questions about anything we discussed, so feel free to email us at thoughts at gettingit.co.uk. You can also reach us on Twitter or Instagram at gettingit underscore pod. You can find all the links in the show notes. 